Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs, the first chapter. We're going to finish up our study of Proverbs 1. As I've told you, we are team teaching it with Aaron and Myrel and Adam, and that's something that the elders and I talked about. We have very capable and structure, uh, uh, um, very capable, informed, and educated men on our staff. And frankly, I think it would be selfish and a little bit um, uh, uh, negligent of us not to hear from these other men. But it's my turn to finish up chapter one. Let me read this passage. It's a longer passage, but I think you'll see it's one paragraph. It's actually a set of several couplets in the Hebrew that all form a single unit. Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, Will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called, and you refused. I stretched out my hand, and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes, when your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a tornado, a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. We've said several times in our study of the book of Proverbs that life is really a series and a cycle of choices. There's big choices and little choices, consequential and inconsequential choices, profound choices and mundane choices. In fact, think about how many choices you've made today already, hundreds if not thousands of choices. Who you would sit by when you would come into the church, when you would change lanes in your car. You decided what to eat for breakfast. You decided to come to church. You chose to sing or not to sing. You made a decision about the clothes you're wearing right now. You made a call on where to park. You decided whether to step up the stairs with your right foot or left foot. You decided to open the church door with your right hand or left hand. You have made 
thousands of choices already today. But do you have a criterion for making those choices? Better said, do you understand the filter through which you make these decisions? The truth is, you have a criteria or criterion for making decisions, all of them. But can you identify the principles that go into your decision making? Not so much the right or left hand opening the door, but the bigger relational decisions, the bigger consequential decisions, the ones you're going to make tonight with interaction with people, the ones you'll make tomorrow at work, interacting with your family. Every decision is the result of listening to pre-established values, pre-established criteria that exists in your mind. Some of which is intentional, most of which you've just inherited by being alive. Now, most decisions are intuitively processed through a hedonistic perspective. And I'm not talking about an evil hedonism, just a simple hedonism that says, I choose naturally, without any initiative, things that will bring me more pleasure than less pleasure, more comfort than less comfort, less pain than more pain, less problems than worse problems. Other decisions are put through a, what we could call a love perspective or an other's perspective. This can be observed in the proverbial story of mom coming in with one of the kids to get a piece of pie at the same time that the child comes in to get a piece of pie and they both reach for it and suddenly mom's not so hungry anymore, right? Well, she made a decision based on love to self-sacrifice and suspend her pleasure for the pleasure of someone else. Still other decisions are made for immediate gratification, others for delayed gratification. Well, there's a more important distinction in these decisions that Proverbs outlines in the most intricate and worldview perspective. This is the decision that comes from understanding whether something is a moral category of decision or whether something is in a wisdom category of decision. Let me, let me explain or illustrate. Um, if I, uh, uh, Kim and Mark and I went out to lunch today and uh, as we were checking out, there was a, a, a thing where you could buy uh, candy. If I were to slip one of those candy bars in my pocket without paying, that's a moral decision, right? It's a right and wrong decision. I didn't do that, by the way. Right and wrong decisions, moral decisions, yes and no decisions, please God, displease God decisions. And if I could be frank, those are easier decisions than the other category. The other category are wisdom decisions. Where to live, where to work, who to date, who to marry, who to be friends with. These come into applying, listen, moral decisions that God outlines and transforming those moral decisions into a wisdom perspective that allows us to make decisions that don't have a book, chapter, and verse. So let me give you a pop quiz. Is buying a house or renting an apartment or choosing which car to drive or choosing which car to, to, um, uh, to purchase is that a decision to which the Bible speaks? And the answer is, well, no. And the answer is, well, yes. 
In other words, there's no book, chapter, and verse that says, buy the red Porsche in my Bible. I wish there was. There is no verse that says that. But there are verses that talk about stewardship and economy, uh, not living above your means. There's, there's hundreds of principles that can go into that. And still, at the end, none of those decisions decide whether the red or the blue is better. God has given us the wonderful gift of preference that's okay underneath the guise of obeying his moral statutes. Most of the book of Proverbs shows how moral decisions, right and wrong, give us the, the equipment, give us the, the, the perspective, the criteria to make wise decisions and better decisions than other decisions in the wisdom comparison. I love how Solomon blends together moral and wisdom decisions and helps us to see how they inform one another. Now, ultimately, as you know, the best moral decision and the best wisdom decision that you can make is to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to him as your Lord and Savior. Believe that he has lived and died and rose from a crucifixion, a death on a cross for the sins of those who would believe and that you can give your, your allegiance to his lordship and that he is, his commands are good and his commands are gracious, his commands are helpful, his commands are merciful and to follow and obey him as Lord is for our good. That's the ultimate decision of life. And I trust just looking around the room that most of you have actually made that decision. But still, after you make that first decision of following God, how do you make all the rest of them? Does God have to do with all of your decisions? How would you answer that? Is God somehow, does, his, does the weight of Almighty God have any bearing, even in the smallest part, on every decision we make? And for the Christian, the answer is, well, yes, Absolutely. In our last study, we heard the call and the wooing of peer pressure, the call and the wooing of the wicked. That was verses 11 through 14, and it voiced the, this perspective of listening to the wrong counsel. We're going to grab that and grab what it means to fear God and have wisdom, and this is all just going to flow verse after verse in this very tight little unit. Now, if you want to follow an outline, we're going to look at three choices for a life of wisdom. Three choices that you need to make, that I need to make, decisional choices. Three choices for a life of wisdom. Now, let me say something before we get into this. One of the things that's interesting and most necessary to notice and appreciate about the book of Proverbs is that Solomon is intentionally and overwhelmingly overwhelmingly repetitive. And if you want to know why he is, just ask any parent who's tried to raise a child. Is it possible to say something one time and it's done and caught the lessons learned and no more need to understand? No, no, no. It's almost like Solomon tells us something like fear the Lord. We've already heard that several times in chapter one. And we say, okay, and we start wandering off in our imagination and he grabs our chin and says, no, 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 listen, listen, 
I don't know if you heard, fear the Lord. And we start wandering off and, no, no, listen, you have to fear the Lord. So if some of this sounds repetitive, not only is it, drum roll, you're gonna hear it again. And that's by divine intent. The first choice for a life of wisdom is asking this question, will I refuse wisdom's invitation? You have to make this choice. Will I refuse wisdom's invitation? Now, Proverbs will repeatedly teach us that everyone falls into two big categories. Adam has said this. Aaron has said this. Myrl has said this. The book of Proverbs says there's two kinds of people, right? The wise and the foolish. Those who are wise and those who are fools. Those who do not fear God... There's a perpetual perspective that disbelieves the principle of cause and effect. It disregards God. It ignores God. It ignores the principles that God has put into cause and effect and reaping and sowing. This is what keeps fools from weighing what they say and what they do. And don't overstretch fools and wise into believers and unbelievers. Sometimes that's the case, And sometimes foolishness is just being young and dumb and immature. Solomon will later say foolishness is bound up where? In the heart of a child. I'll never forget telling one of my sons, don't touch that, it's hot. And the smile came and the arm moved forward and the fingers extended to touch the cup And the cry happened. That's foolish. So you have to understand that sometimes when he talks about foolishness, it's talking about just being, as we'll see, naive, immature, inexperienced. And you can grow out of that. By the way, we're all foolish at some level. But sometimes he talks about the fool as someone who has rejected wisdom's invitation like we're about to see. Someone who said, I've heard what God has said. I've heard what the word says. I've read the Bible, heard the Bible preached, and I am willfully and willingly going to choose another way. This is the man in Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And this assessment is made as God, in his wisdom, calls out and begs in the streets to be heard. Verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. Stop right there. We have wisdom now being personified. Not only is it personified, it's personified as a woman, a wise woman, like a mother who's telling a child how to live. How do we know that? The next pronoun. She lifts her voice in the square. This would have been the meeting place in a, in a central, in a city. The place where everyone came to, to trade and to exchange news. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. Now, the setting is an ancient Near Eastern city. Wisdom is like a town crier announcing danger in a full voice. And notice, this is an open invitation. 
It's extended to anyone who will listen. You tonight are personally invited by God to hear the voice of wisdom. Where does this come from? How do we hear the voice of wisdom? Now, before we look at the person who doesn't, can I just encourage you, as I think most of you are, as someone who has, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians, the second chapter. Where does a New Testament believer find the greatest expression of wisdom? Paul says to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that in their hearts they may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attending to all the wealth. I love that. All the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself. Adam talked about that when he led us in music tonight. That that mystery is the incarnation of God in Christ. Now look what he says next. In whom, in Christ, are hidden all, not some, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you see that? So when we hear wisdom in the book of Proverbs, when we hear wisdom being personified, I truly believe that the greatest personification of wisdom we can understand is that this is none other than the voice of Christ himself. Now, look back to Proverbs for a moment because this is, this is an important connection that we're going to make in the coming months as we study this. Turn over to chapter 8, Proverbs 8. Verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does that sound familiar? Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her, see it there, her voice? On the top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand beside the gates at the opening to the city and the entrance to the doors. She cries out and then he gives another introduction to her application of wisdom that we'll study when we get there. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out seven, her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her tables. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops, the heights of the city. And then we find in the next verse, whoever is naive, which we're about to see in chapter one. The point is this, wisdom is, is personified as lady wisdom in Proverbs. But we ultimately see that's just a metaphor. Wisdom is incarnationally demonstrated in our Lord and Savior, Jesus. So that's just the background. Now let's look back at verse 22, chapter one. Wisdom talks, and this is what she says. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? Let me put that in vernacular that you might understand a little better. And I'm not stretching the Hebrew when I say this. How long, 
Oh, knuckleheads. Well, you love being immature. It's immature ones, naive ones, those who have not made a commitment to God yet, those who are living according to their internal principles and intuition, not according to the principles of wisdom outlined in God's word. He asks a question. If you're immature, how long are you going to stay that way? If you're stupid, how long are you going to be that way? If you're ignorant, when are you going to wake up and find out? It's okay to be ignorant and it's okay to be immature because you can grow out of those things. It's not okay to be the next category, a scoffer. And scoffers, this is those who now have matured to the point that they actually make fun of righteousness. They make fun of morality. They love to laugh at immorality. They love to make fun of those who have a standard of righteousness that's more strict than their own. They scoff. They mock. In fact, it says they delight themselves in scoffing. And fools, kasil, in the Hebrew, unbridled rejectors of wisdom. They hate knowledge. Now we've moved from the category of the immature foolish person who can grow out of that to those who've grown enough to say, I've made a choice not to be wise and to follow my own impulses and to live contrary to God's ways. Fools hate knowledge. Does that mean they dislike calculus and world history? No, no. This is the knowledge that's already been qualified in the first chapter of God. Knowledge that matters. Knowledge that changes your life. And so wisdom begs again, verse 23, turn to my reproof. Listen to my correction. Turn my way. And here's the gracious invitation. And behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. I love the second chance in that verse. Do you hear it? You've grown out of being immature into a deliberate, willful condition of rejecting God and his wisdom. And still, wisdom says there's time to repent, there's time to turn, there's time to re-embrace what you know better to live by. I will make my words known to you. Even after these decisions have been made, wisdom says, come back. Come back. You can still do what's right. I, I, I used to think that God was a God of second chances. Boy, that is not true. He's a God of third and fourth and 175th and 1,416 chances. Is he not? How long will you love being immature Will you learn to love to be a scoffer? Will you become a fool that hates God's knowledge? Stop. Stop now and turn back before it's too late. It's a deliberate call for a choice. No room for passivity. If you choose wisdom, you'll receive its spirit, it says. That's a simple way of saying maturity and a godly perspective. It will live life. The, the word here is breath. It will give you life and breath in your life. 
So wisdom stands in the streets and calls. The question that you and I have to ask is, will I listen? Now stop for a moment and quit doing what I know that you are doing because I do it too. Don't we all have someone in mind who should really hear this? Can't you picture someone who's in these categories, immature and needs to grow up, rejecting God and needs to turn back? Don't you know that instead of seeing that that's us in different categories of our life, don't refuse wisdom's invitation. A second choice for a life of wisdom is the bulk of this passage. Will I ignore wisdom's warning? Will I ignore wisdom's warning? Remember, this is the very beginning. We're still on the on-ramp in chapter one. He's looking at Rehoboam and he's saying, I gotta warn you of what's coming. If you don't get how dangerous this is, you might touch that which is hot. You might drive off the cliff. You might step in the covered hole. You might try to walk across the bridge that won't support your weight. It's a warning. The rejection of wisdom here is treated more extensively than its reception. Verse 24. Wisdom still speaking, because I called and you refused. Just stop and think of the tragedy of this. God, through Lady Wisdom, says here is how to live the best to correct your life, to enjoy the world I've given you. But because wisdom calls and God extends that invitation and you, some, refused, this is incredible. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. That's even the third chance we've already found in this passage. I reached out my hand and you didn't even pay attention. Listen, friends, can I just tell you one of, the, one of the subtitles of my biography that I wish had never been written is how many times I can look back and see the extension of God's wisdom, the extension of his stretched out hand and see so many times that I have not paid attention to it. In the moment of sin, he always provides the escape valve, the escape hatch, doesn't he? No temptation has overtaken you, 1 Corinthians 10, but such as is common to man and God is faithful and with the temptation will provide the way of what? Escape. That you can endure that temptation. Not paid attention. And it gets worse you rejected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. The tragic case of hearing wise counsel and not paying attention to it. When Kim and I moved out to Kansas, we came along I-40 through West Texas. Any of you ever been on I-40? I'm so sorry. Um, if you've been on I-40 through West Texas. You come out of Tucson, you go toward the Texas border, and basically there was one exit, and there's signs up to this exit that says, last gas for 200 miles. And it's true. To say there's nothing out there is an overstatement. I mean, it is nothingness for a long time. 
Can you imagine having a quarter tank of gas, seeing the signs, next gas 200 miles, and just saying, nah, I don't believe that. Surely there's going to be a gas station. There's that. No, no one takes that seriously. We laugh at that and we say that's silly. That's exactly what's going on here. I gave you counsel. You neglected it. You didn't want my correction or my reproof. If that isn't bad enough, the last phrase, go to the, go to the hearts of desire and teachability. You didn't even want to know that you were going to run out of gas. You didn't even want to know what was right and wrong. Boy, do we want wisdom's sweet and gracious reproof. Now, the, 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 the tone of this text turns in verse 26. You hear wisdom having an attitude, a divinely sanctioned attitude. I will also laugh at your calamity, your, the Hebrew is tragedy, your evil, your crashing and burning. I will mock when your dread comes. This is divine sarcasm that's not sinful. Now, if you want to know if this is the only place like that, you don't need to look very far, except Psalm 2. The nations are roaring against God, and he, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It's the same thing. God is gracious and God is patient and God extends chance after chance after chance. But there's a limit where he says, okay, if you want to choose this way, I want to let you, as we'll see in a minute, eat the fruit of your choices. Verse 27, when your dread comes like a storm and that disaster comes like a whirlwind, literally the, that word is a tornado. When distress and anguish come upon you, natural consequences of foolishness are depicted here as a storm and a whirlwind or a tornado. And what's interesting about those is they have uncontrolled properties with regard to our decisions. We, we can't control the weather uncontrolled and unpredictable effects. Verse 28, then there's the regret of ignoring wisdom. Then, after the calamity, after the collapse, after the tragedy, after the consequences are seen, then, then they will call on me. But, then I will not answer. They will seek me diligently but they will not find me. This is the reality of coming to your senses too late after the consequences of ignoring wisdom have set in and you've lost something precious to you, something important to you because of the decisions to be unwise. Listen. It's never too late to repent, even if the consequences of bad choices dog you, it's never too late to repent. Ask the thief on the cross. It is never too late, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't allow the 
the divine principle of cause and effect in reaping and sowing to happen in your life. Note the aggressive rejection of God and wisdom in these verses. Reject knowledge in verse 22. Rejection of the fear of the Lord in verses 7 and 9. Rejection of counsel in verse 25. And rejection of reproof in verse 23. Rejection, rejection, rejection. Look at the climax here in verse 29. Because they hated knowledge, and as we've heard already previously in, in, in studies in Proverbs, you can imply there the knowledge and instruction from the Lord, the knowledge of God and instruction from God. They hated knowledge. Job describes a fool's attitude similarly. He says in Job 21, 14, they say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Can we be really practical? Do you find your heart sometimes Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, Sunday night, care group, youth ministry, Bible study, Thursday morning men's training, one of the 1,700 Bible studies that Bill Milam leads. Do you find yourself in any of these opportunities ever going, that's not worth it. Ah, it's not worth it. I'm tired. And God gives rest. We heard it this morning, right? He wouldn't want me to be tired. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways, Job said. Wow. And, verse 29, does this sound familiar? Did not choose the fear of the Lord. There's so many angles to take with this admonition. This is the fear of the Lord that we've heard about so often in chapter one. This means reverence and divine awe and being in, in terror of his majesty while loving him at the same time, having the competing emotions of, of wanting to run from him and wanting to run to him at the same time. That's the fear of God. Solomon gets to the heart of a fool. He or she hates knowledge, hates instruction, hates what the Bible says, hates the Bible standard, says they want to obey it and ignores it habitually. A deep-seated attitude of, I don't want to be told what to think and I don't want to be told what to do. We say the Lord Jesus Christ for a reason. He is master. If you have a repulsion and a revulsion to being told what to do, you don't understand the essence of being a Christian. I love the fact that this is a choice. You did not choose the fear of the Lord. How do you choose the fear of the Lord? You choose to know who he is. Remember what Solomon is going to say, we've already alluded to this. I think each one of us has looked over at this passage in chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here it is. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There it is. 
Theology proper, understanding who God is, understanding what God's like, understanding God's ways, how he responds to unrighteousness, how he responds to righteousness. Knowing God is what produces the fear of God. As I said, the fear of God is this this wonderfully competing and non-competing emotion of wanting to run to him because of his beauty and majesty and wanting to run from him because of the terror of his holiness all resolved in Christ and the cross. Dwayne Garrett says of this, wisdom is not abstract, secular, or academic, but personal and theological. And then he says this, to reject wisdom is to reject God. He provides commentary In verse 30, they would not accept wisdom, my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So, here's the reaping what you sow. They shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satisfied or satiated with their own devices, their own bad choices. What that's saying is a a scary, scary principle. If you reject the wisdom and knowledge of God and choose a path of evil and lack of wisdom and foolishness, that will actually begin to satisfy. Verse 32, for the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. You know, I'm I'm just intrigued by this word complacency. Um... If you choose not to decide something, you still made a pretty significant choice. Complacency. This also has the idea of procrastinating. I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with God tomorrow, next week, next year, when I get older. Just complacent. Complacency of fools will destroy them. Pursuing God and pursuing wisdom is an active, aggressive initiative of the soul. Those are some stiff warnings. Will you ignore wisdom's warning? This is the warning of God, just like Dwayne Garrett said, to to hear wisdom's voice is to hear the voice of God. To ignore wisdom is to ignore God. To reject wisdom is to reject God. I love how Solomon wraps this up. He brings a third choice for a life of wisdom. Will I refuse wisdom's initiative? excuse me, invitation, will I ignore wisdom's warning? And then he asks, will I forfeit wisdom's promise? At the end of this warning, he, I love the grace. Do you, do you, do you feel the moisture of being saturated with grace in this verse? But he who listens to me, to wisdom, shall live securely. That's important in light of the warnings we just heard. Calamity that comes. Eating the fruit of our own way. Ultimately being satiated with more and more wicked choices. He who listens to me shall live securely, not under the threat of an unwise lifestyle, unwise decision. And I love this last phrase. And will be at ease from the dread 
of evil. You know, so much of life is full of dread, isn't it? You just dread. There's one thing to dread a chore. It's one thing to dread something you have to do. It's one thing to dread a responsibility. It's something else to have ease from the dread of evil. Let's qualify that. Does this mean that if you pursue wisdom, if we listen to wisdom, if we enact wisdom, if we apply wisdom, that evil will not come after us? Well, ask the martyrs at the stake how that worked out for them. No, not at all. This security and this ease is knowing that we have and enjoy the smile of God and that eternity is real and long and that's where all things will be resolved. Hope you'll pray for a, a friend of mine and Kim. She's been diagnosed with a very aggressive form of brain cancer. Her name is Sandy, and I don't think she would remind me, mind me asking you to pray for her. We were interacting with her via text. She's in California yesterday, and she texted us back this morning during the worship service, and I showed it to Kim, and basically she says, I have peace because of what I know. That's the security this is talking about. Do you have peace that can conquer and transcend and sustain any trial? Not peace where you feel okay about bad things. That's, that's an emotion that God doesn't expect. That's why he gave us tear ducts. But do you have the security of knowing no matter what happens, if I pursue the Lord, if I am fearing who he is and running toward him with a gracious caution to accept his invitation, you have the promise to live securely, to be at ease from the dread of evil. You know, security is such a major concern today. It's big business. Security guards, night watchmen, ring system, alarm system, multiple locks, car alarms, panic buttons, even safe rooms. You know, Steve uh, Colin was uh, opening our service tonight. He's from South Africa. And in Johannesburg, it's, there is a, um, uh, where are you, Steve? I think, you're so, I think it still has the highest crime rate in the world. Am I correct? Highest murder rate, highest crime rate. And everyone I've ever stayed with in Johannesburg has multiple, and I mean multiple layers of security. Barbed wire fence, 12 feet walls, cameras everywhere, lights that come on at the slightest movement. Some even put, and I'm not making this up, they put aquariums in the glass between a two-pane glass with poisonous snakes in the, in the windows. And still, the highest break-ins in the world occur there. You know what that says? You cannot find security in anything external. The only security you and I will ever, ever own and truly know is the one that God gives in our hearts. Where if the worst thing that could happen does happen and we lose our lives, we're okay. 
Only God can guarantee ultimate safety and ultimate safety is only experienced in heaven. Would you turn to James chapter one? Most of you know this passage. Most of you have memorized this passage, but the half-brother of our Lord Jesus wrote this. What do we do about wanting to get this wisdom? How can we get it? How can we not reject it? James 2, James 1 rather, chapter 1 verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We've said over and over, if I could change one word in the Bible, I would change that word when to if. Don't you wish you said if, but it doesn't. I wouldn't want to change the Bible. Don't write a blog. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete and lack nothing. But... Here it is, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, James, tell me what to do. He is the brother of the one in whom all wisdom dwelled in bodily form. James says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Listen to this grace. Who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, this is, I think, akin to the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What do we learn here? When you stitch these two together, the brother of our, the half-brother of our Lord who, in whom dwelt all wisdom, Colossians tells us, is connected to Solomon who said, you need to pursue wisdom. And if you put those together, pursuing the wisdom of God means the knowledge of God which is presented in his word, ultimately, which is best and most clearly manifest in Christ. And when you don't know what to do, this context is in the middle of a trial. When you don't know what to do, God says, have you ever thought about asking me? This is really a passage about prayer. You see how it is? All of this builds to the point where we would ask God for the wisdom to be wise enough to know that we're not wise enough. Your big decisions, are you regularly, are we regularly submitting those to God in prayer? And not just a cursory prayer before dinner. I mean begging God to show us the right way and the wrong way. And then sometimes the best way over a good way. God loves. He is waiting to hear our requests for that kind of insight and that kind of wisdom. Boy, I hope we're going to be a church. 
hope we are a church that seeks God for the wisdom for our ministry in Kansas City, for our ministry at work, for our ministry at school, for our ministry in our neighborhoods, for our endurance of trials, for our being seemingly trapped in inescapable turmoil. Seeking wisdom begins by asking God for wisdom and then not just letting go and letting God. That's nonsense. Asking God and then looking for his answers in his word. So again, this is the read your Bible more sermon, right? Better to seek wisdom before you are in a trial than in the middle of one. And at any point in this process, verse 33 tells us, you can turn back to God and say, no matter how many mistakes and how many failures and how much reaping we're doing of sowing bad choices, God still reaches and God still cares. You and I have an undeservedly gracious Lord and King, do we not? What a kind God. He's so good. He's so patient. And even after we crash and burn and extinguish, he reaches out and says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says we can ask him for wisdom. Let me do that for us now, can I?